Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, everybody. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. Here in Los Angeles, it's good to be with you. Hope you're doing all right out there, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for listening. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So today I'm going to be doing another Craftwork episode, and I will be in conversation with Maggie Downs, author, journalist, world traveler, and travel writer. We're going to be talking about travel writing, which is, I think, something that most of us who write have aspired to at one point or another, or daydreamed about at one point or another. Wouldn't it be nice to get paid to travel? which, of course, travel writers actually do. Or at least they sometimes do. And Maggie Downs has had success at this. And not only that, she has traveled all over the world. You may recall that Maggie has guested on this program. I talked to her in episode 660 back in July of 2020 when she was out touring for her memoir, Braver Than You Think, around the world on the trip of my mother's lifetime. It was published by Counterpoint and became an instant Amazon bestseller. So I will be speaking with Maggie Downs today about travel writing. That conversation is coming up momentarily. Before we get started, a quick reminder that I do a free weekly email newsletter. I would love it if you signed up for it. You can do so at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. My newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast, and I share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to receive an email from me on a weekly basis, go sign up at otherppl.com 
or bradlisty.com. Likewise, if you are a regular listener of this program or if you love book culture, if you want to support the cause and help keep this show rolling into the future, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different levels. There's merchandise, all sorts of fun stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right, so today... Once again, I will be in conversation with Maggie Downs. We are going to be talking about how to be a travel writer. Maggie's book, again, is called Braver Than You Think, a travel memoir, and she has traveled all over the place, all over the globe, and has done some travel writing in the process. I'm very happy to welcome her back onto the program We had a very illuminating conversation about travel and travel writing, how to do it, how to find your beat, how to pitch stories and find editors, and how to turn on the ground travel experiences into captivating stories that people will want to read and more. It's a wide ranging conversation. Let's get to it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation about travel writing with Maggie Downs. So my background is in newspapers, and I started at a very small newspaper in Zanesville, Ohio first, um, covering a variety of beats. And from there, I moved on to the Cincinnati Enquirer, uh, which was like the big city for me. And that was a really exciting, vibrant newsroom full of, you know, I had some really smart, um, amazing colleagues there who were great reporters, but hard news wasn't really my thing. So um, from there, I moved on to Palm Springs, California, where I worked for the Desert Sun. And at the Desert Sun, uh, that's, that was my first foray into feature writing. And, um, and I was writing about Coachella and the film festival and cocktails and all sorts of fun things. But, um, but after a while, even that gets formulaic. And, um, and I had always wanted to travel. And then a few things just happened in my life where I thought, you know, I really, I need to get out of this cubicle. I quit my job. I sold all of my things, and um, I ended up backpacking around the world for a year. Okay, which we should let listeners know we discussed in episode 660 of this program about three years ago, yes. and you wrote a book about this called Braver Than You Think, Yes, and it set the stage for you to pivot to travel writing as a journalist. Like, I mean, I know you wrote, a, obviously you wrote a long form, uh, you wrote a book about it, But in terms of your career interest upon return, like after doing that, I have to believe that travel writing was in your DNA if it wasn't there already. So the interesting thing about that trip is that I was so burnt out from the newspaper world, I didn't intend to become a travel writer. I just, um, and in fact, I didn't think I would ever write again. And so when I went on this trip, I didn't bring a notebook with me, nothing. I just, I, I kept a blog for friends and family, but that was, that's when there were a lot of travel blogs. It was like 
kind of the golden era of travel blogging. And I thought, oh, the world is saturated with travel writing. I have nothing to contribute. I just kept a website for, like I said, friends and family. And I thought, as I'm traveling, I'm going to find what I'm meant to do. And, um, and so I tried volunteering along the way. I was a teacher briefly. Um, I taught English. I volunteered at a monkey sanctuary. Um, I volunteered I with, with elephants, you know, yeah. and I thought, I'm going to find my calling. And at the end of the trip, all I wanted to do was share the stories from that trip. And I thought, dang it, I'm, I guess I'm a writer after all. Like I, along the way, I had picked up a notebook and I started writing more and more about this trip. And so I've, you know, figured out that travel writing was kind of the next journey for me. Well, I feel like this confirms my theory that if you are a writer, like what is it? There's like a Lori Moore line about this. Like if you're curious to know whether or not you're a writer, like try to do something else, like anything else. Right. And then <laughs> yeah. if you keep writing <laughs> despite that, then you know, like, you, like yeah. you can't get away, you know, that's kind of part of it. I did my best to actively shake it and writing kept finding me over and over again. And I remember, you know, traveling also gave me the opportunity to read more. And so I, I had all of these like long bus trips or um, flights or just I, I just had a lot of opportunity to read books again. And I started digging into some really beautiful books and and a lot of the writers that I loved in their bios, it said that they had MFAs. And that kind of opened up the, kind of planted the seed for me getting an MFA after the trip. And I'm not saying you have to have an MFA to be a travel writer or to be any kind of writer, but that just opened up another doorway for me. It's a space to go, like meet people who are also interested in it. And it's a space to find time to work. Right. You know, that's how I experienced it. I don't think it's necessary either, but it can be helpful. Exactly. Yeah. And it gave me just more time to dig into the craft. And that was that that was what I needed because in newspapers, I didn't really have a lot of like there's not the opportunity to really dig into the craft on a daily basis when you're just trying to meet deadlines and and get things in the paper for the next day. Yeah, I know. I, I hear that. Like it's it's not conducive to like really deep dive writing or to like massive revision even because it's so time sensitive. But I think that there is something really useful about that training. Whenever I speak with somebody who is on this show, you know, promoting a book or something, who has worked as a journalist, it tends to serve them well in, ten, in terms of like not being too precious, being able to just get words on the page. It enforces that discipline upon you. That it's like, it's like when people serve in the military, they're really good at getting up early. <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, they never have trouble like waking up at dawn ever again. And I think if you've worked like uh, on the Zanesville courthouse beat or something, right. you are going to be for the rest of your life able to get words on the page, even if you don't feel like it. That's true. Although I will say in newspapers, you know, when copy editors are trying to make things fit into a certain space on the physical page, the first things that get cut are adjectives. So I learned to write without a lot of color in my stories um, because it, it was just cut so often. And so after I left newspapers and I started writing for magazines, I had one editor who looked at a story and he said, 
your newspaper roots are showing. And he definitely meant that as an insult. And and I was kind of embarrassed, but that was also kind of, it, it was a sign to me to start working on weaving more color into stories, using adjectives, like kind of delving into the writing a little bit more. Yeah. 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 It's not like quite so austere. And you do have to, I mean, when you're writing travel pieces, you are, I mean, it's more atmospheric right. than the typical straight journalism piece or even less straight, right? I mean, if anything is going to call for some adjectives, it would be a travel piece or maybe a food piece or something, you know, where it's really sensory. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's probably the most difficult thing to overcome with travel writing is that you know, you're giving people the secondhand experience of something. And so you do have to be very descriptive and give people just a way of understanding what you're talking about. And I remember the first time it really like clicked for me was when I read this essay written by it's a guy named Ryan Knighton. And he wrote an essay for Afar magazine about what it's like going on safari as a traveler who is visually impaired. And, and he is blind and he writes about the experience of like first hearing an elephant approaching the vehicle that he's in and then smelling the elephant. And like, I still, I get tingles when I think about this story because it was so on point with sensory details and it, it's everything that I want my writing to be. I want people to understand like what it's like to be in that moment, the way that, that he wrote this piece. I feel like traveling, I mean, this has just been my experience of it, but wanting to tell the stories, the impulse to want to share the stories that you accumulate as you travel, especially when you're traveling afar, you're Mm -hmm. somewhere way outside of your comfort zone or way outside of your cultural context on the other side of the planet. It just, there's a lot of tedium involved in travel, so we can't deny that, right? Like waiting in customs lines and you know, being in some shitty hotel where the air conditioner breaks or anything can, you know, a lot of things go wrong. Logistics can be difficult when it comes to travel, but you do accumulate so many stories mm-hmm. and life. It's so stimulating and interesting to be disoriented. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's, that's honestly what I love most about travel is that you are forced to give up any sort of illusion of control. You know, there are just so many things that happen along the way and you just have to realize like that's life and that's life when you're traveling and, you know, you have to pivot, you have to figure out a new way and you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and that's what I think changes a person. It shakes you up. It makes you come home as a different person. And I love that, you know, and also I don't feel like I am particularly vulnerable on a daily basis, but then while I'm traveling, like I'm forced to be vulnerable and I'm forced to push myself beyond my comfort zone and talk to strangers and ask for help. And, and I'm vulnerable in a way that, that I'm not at home. And I really, I like that. Especially solo travel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, solo travels, I think really, it's a good way to travel, you know, because it really forces you into contact to a greater degree. If you're traveling with a, a partner or a friend or a group or something, then you can be a little bit insular. You can kind of just talk to each other the whole time. But if you're on your own, 
you've got to interact yeah. and you've got to be vulnerable, as you say. Like not only, I mean, there's some physical vulnerability in travel, though I think sometimes this stuff gets overstated, like how dangerous it can be to be in certain parts of the world when the truth is that if you use some common sense, it's often much better than advertised. But what you're mostly talking about is emotional vulnerability. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I have to say that the most satisfying travel experiences of my life occurred when I was traveling solo and when I did allow myself to just, you know, to be emotionally vulnerable in those moments. I remember I was very, very nervous about traveling to India and a friend had convinced me to go. And the night before we were supposed to leave, she met a guy and decided to go to Berlin with him. Uh-huh. And so I ended up traveling to Mumbai by myself. And, and it, was, it was so wonderful. And I had so many experiences that I wouldn't have had had my friend been with me. You know, I met families on trains who pretty much adopted me and they took me, you know, to their home and to their temple and gave me cooking lessons. And, you know, I just interacted with people in a way that I wouldn't have had I had a travel partner. Okay. So let's talk, I mean, now's as good a time as any, because I'm sure there might be some listeners at home who are wondering about safety issues. Yes. Reading people, trusting them enough to go to their homes you know, all of this sort of stuff. And then add to that the fact that you are a woman traveling solo, which may, maybe adds an element of vulnerability or, you know, there might be people who think that that is unsafe. Like, can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about these kinds of issues? Yeah. So um, over time, I worked out my own kind of safety system, I guess you would call it. Whenever I travel to a new place, I tend to stay in a more expensive hotel the first night. Um, and I'm, it doesn't have to be like the Ritz Carlton. I'm talking like, you know, just as a person who had been traveling in hostels, this was like, I would stay in a $25 a night hotel room or, you know, just, just something, um, a little more legit so that I knew I had someplace to sleep the first night. And then I would spend the next couple days walking different neighborhoods and kind of getting a feel for whatever place I was in. And that would help me determine like which neighborhood I wanted to use as a base and where I felt safe and where I felt comfortable and, and just, uh, you know, places where I would find like cafes where I felt comfortable eating or just, you know, just any place I felt comfortable. So the first thing was, you know, I would shell out more for a hotel the first night and then find my my comfortable place. I also used a lot of networks. Like I would have my friends let me know if they had relatives or, you know, friends in a certain place. So I relied a lot on like friends of friends. I also travel with a hiking pole and not that... Not that I've ever had to use it, but it just made me feel better to think like, okay, I'm carrying a big stick. <laughs> like on my first day in a new place, I have this, this sharp pole <laughs> and if I ever needed to use it, like I had something. Even um, in a city, you're carrying this thing around? So, um, so I had like, I mean, I just looked like the typical dorky backpacker. I had like a you know, a big backpack and it was like a telescoping hiking pole, but I would use it as like a walking stick. And then after... And when you, when you say telescoping, you mean collapsible? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just so people don't think it's like got dual, it's not some James (laughs) Bond device. No. And, but that was, 
Just when I was initially in a place, you know, for day-to-day walking around, no, I wouldn't carry I wouldn't carry a big stick. I would also travel with, and I still travel with, just a cheap little rubber doorstop, like a little wedge that goes under the door so that because... Oh, I remember you telling me this. Yeah. You know, sometimes some of the hostels that I stayed in were a little shady or some of the hotels, and that just gave me just a little more comfort to know that even if someone unlocked the door, they wouldn't be able to shove their way inside. Right. Um, and there was one time where somebody, um, where a proprietor unlocked the door and tried to enter my room in the middle of the night, but I had that little wedge there. So, I mean, I was awake for the rest of the night, but, <laughs> but it did its like, job. In, um, a, in, a nin- in a ninja pose with your hiking yeah, pole, right? Just right. ready to, yeah. just got just that guy. Waiting for fish. daylight. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I think, I think there's a lot to be said for, just trusting your instinct. And also, I firmly believe there are more good people than bad people in the world. And I don't know that I encountered very many bad people. Yeah, in my travel solo, I remember I almost got mugged once because some dude in the Czech Republic was trying to sell me weed. But he wanted me to walk down like a, basically like a dark alley with him. Mm -hmm. He's like, come this way, come this way. And I started following him and then all of a sudden I was like, nope. And I just turned around and left my instincts. I was like, this isn't right. And I'm uh, like 99% sure he was going to pull a knife on me and try to like ask for my wallet if we got clear of like the town square. But you just have to use your instincts. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that I'm a, a savvy traveler now that I've, I've been to all these countries, but I'm, I'm sure I still get scammed. I'm sure I still pay too much money for things. I just chalk it up to a tourist tax and accept it. And, you know, it's, impo- it's impossible to avoid. Right. And I think at the same time, I mean, you, yeah, you still get scammed. Nobody's perfect. There's always a learning curve. You're going to make mistakes traveling. You have to, that's baked into the cake, but especially on a trip, as long as the one you took for a year, mm-hmm. all the way around the world, I feel like you do develop like travel muscles, right? Like, you know, if you like by like month eight, you were significantly like more like road tested than yes. you were at the beginning, right? You get good. Yeah. Um, and then, but now it's a completely different experience because I tend to travel a lot with my child. So I'm not quite staying in like the, the shady hostels that I used to, or, or even, <laughs> I mean, even the good hostels. I've kind of aged out of hostels, which is a little sad. I liked staying in hostels. So, I mean, yeah, you can't put your kid on like night watch with the hiking pole right. you know, or in a dorm night. room. Like nobody wants a nine-year-old in their dorm room. No. <laughs> so and are you, I mean, when you say you're tra- traveling with your child, is this on assignment or is this just, I have taken him out on assignments. Yeah. But I haven't taken him on press trips. But he's he's accompanied me for um, for some things that I've done, like for BBC travel and um, and other things. Good for him. That's a great thing. I mean, travel's such a great education for anybody at, at any age, you know. But I think it's it's got to be fun for you to be able to share that with your kid and yeah. to be able to like see like see his like mind open up and to see his mind get blown when he suddenly finds himself like where like in Ecuador or whatever it is you know the thing is he doesn't know any different so you know when he goes back to school like he just assumes everyone went to 
interview people on a cacao farm in Belize (laughs) or or that everyone's mom hikes Mount Kilimanjaro. He's just like, that's, that's what mom does. So, which I think is really cool. I like that he's, that I'm mentoring that for him and kind of showing him the world. Yeah. It leaves a deep impression. Like even if they, even if he's not necessarily like verbalizing it or demonstrating it somehow, like that stuff imprints itself on you. Like I have to believe and when it comes to, uh, you know, travel writing as compared to other forms of writing, are there things that you found that distinguish it? You know, obviously you kind of talked a bit about it with respect to straight journalism and kind of the more austere reportage that you were doing earlier in your career. But can you talk just a little bit about the things that distinguish travel writing? Yeah. So there are many forms of travel writing. I know people who write guidebooks, even though that's not a form I've ever done myself. There are reviews, uh, how-to guides, a lot of lists. I'm sure you've seen like the five best beaches in Mykonos or, you know, like that type of thing. Destination pieces, marketing copy, and, and narrative essays. And so a challenge for me when I was entering the travel writing world was kind of figuring out where I fit into those different formats, I think I prefer writing narratives and, um, and essays, just figuring out like what it all means when you're traveling. I also love destination pieces and really like digging into, um, into the vibe of a place and describing that for people. And mentally, one thing I had to get over was for a while, I felt like travel pieces weren't important. Um, and then over time, I realized, you know, travel writing, first of all, it, it involves so many great things about like a food of a place and the culture and history. And, and you can really dig into some really um, important themes and, and talk about different issues with travel writing. But also, you know, when you're, when you're writing an article about a place, you're helping someone else eventually have the best day of their life or make meaningful memories with their families or, you know, see the world through a new lens. And, and I can't think of anything, you know, more noble than that. So, so I I was going to say, I, you know, I feel like this conversation happened a lot around, like, for example, Anthony Bourdain's show and the work that he did, Mm -hmm. which, you know, nominally is like, it's a travel show. It's food porn. You know, there's all these different ways to characterize it or minimize it, but the reason it was so resonant and popular is that it's really a human thing right. and it's really, it's shrinking the world. It's showing people places that they might not otherwise see, but it's also at its deepest levels, I think, showing us our common humanity, yes. you know, and I think travel writing performs the same function. Right. I think it really helps cultivate empathy in people. And I, I love that about travel writing. I also feel like we're in a time where, um, intelligence is artificial and so many things are virtual and people just want reality again and people are going to start to want these real human experiences and to know about other people and you know we live in a time where it's easier than ever to exist in a bubble and to be around people who are like you and so anytime there's an opportunity to share the world through someone else's eyes or to elevate other voices i think that's really important yeah i mean i i think that it would be 
good for any country, but like since we're Americans, let's just say the United States of America to elevate the importance of international travel as a national value. Mm -hmm. And even to the point where you might subsidize it, like somehow for like, you know, postgraduate students to be able to go travel for six months or a year and to get some sort of stipend. I don't know how it works, but I want to say in Australia, they, that's the country I always think of where I feel like everybody has gone on a big international sojourn. It seems that way, you know, and other countries too, but you know, it's just good for people and it's good for the health of humanity and the planet for folks to get outside of their little bubble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, just traveling has challenged my beliefs in so many ways and opened my eyes. And every time, every time I travel, I come home a, a new person, which I'm so grateful for. But also I think it's possible to do that just by leaving your house or, you know, finding something new in your neighborhood. Wait, what do you or... mean? What do you mean leave the house? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what are you talking about? And so, so I don't want your listeners to think that like international is the only way to travel or the only way to be a travel writer, because, you know, I, I live in, well, I just relocated outside of Palm Springs, but I've lived for Palm, in Palm Springs for 15 years now, and it's a place where a lot of tourists come. And so I end up making, you know, the bulk of my money writing about the place where I live. <laughs> so, um, so you can get started with travel stories where you are. Well, regionally too. I mean, oh, there's yeah. so many places, so many places to explore in California and the Southwest, you can get to Mexico. I mean, you know, there's there's plenty to explore here. I feel like I've just scratched the surface of understanding California, and I've been here 20 some odd years. You know, there's a lot. It's infinite. You know, there's no way to exhaust it all. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And... When we talk about uh, travel writing and, you know, the different areas that you explore and the places that you might cover, 
and kind of identifying yourself within the genre and specializing somehow. Like, can you talk about finding your beat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, is it something that you sort of self-declare? Is it something that you kind of find in in uh, tandem with an editor or with a particular magazine? Like, how does that happen? So um, I don't know how other writers do it, but when I started, I found a travel writer that I thought was similar in writing styles. And I looked at her and she was much more accomplished than I was. And I looked at her list of credentials, like all the bylines that she had had over the years. And so I, I turned that into my own byline bucket list. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm similar to her. I have totally different ideas, but our styles were the same. So I'm going to try to get pieces in these same outlets and, um, and I just ticked them off one by one. You know, I just started by getting those bylines. And I'm also very motivated by spite. <laughs> and so, so I felt like, like this woman has what I don't. And I want that. And so, um, and, and we don't even know each other. Like she has no idea. Who, who is this woman? I, I'm not going to tell you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, then once I, once I achieved that, then I thought, I had a pretty good idea of the types of pieces I was good at writing. And then now I think my niche kind of shifts along with my interests. Like I love writing about adventure travel. I love outdoor experiences and also meaningful family travel. But then when I look at a story and I think like a travel story and I think, oh, I could have written that then that's what I know. Like, that's my niche. That's, <laughs> that's what I should be writing about. So just to underline it, I think what you're saying is read deeply in the genre. Right, right. If you want to be a travel writer, then read other travel writing right. and figure out what you respond to and keep track of it. Right. Like, have a real clear sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, also see what makes you angry. <laughs> yeah. Well, right? I... I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but living in Palm Springs, people would come into town and they would write stories about Palm Springs. And I would think like, I could have done this or I should have done this or I would have done this better. And so then I started specializing in the California desert. And then, you know, I, I'm three years sober now. So sober travel is another niche that I write into. And I started doing that because, first of all, I was looking for looking for stories just as a traveler, looking for, you know, other people who were writing about this, and I couldn't find much. And so I started doing that because there was there was a need to be filled. So I, I write a lot about that. Yeah, just that seems smart. Like I, I read the piece that you wrote about Vegas. Oh yeah. Like which is, by the way a hotbed of sober travel. So many sober people in <laughs> yeah. Las Vegas just wandering just in a very calm, completely uh, placid, you know, sober state of mind through those casinos. It's, uh, it's wonderful. You know, but that was, that was a travel experience that really surprised me because I didn't think I would, I didn't think I would come out of that Vegas experience with any stories. You know, I'm, I'm much more, I love to write about the natural world, and there's not a lot of natural stuff in Vegas. Um, there is once you get outside, but I didn't think I would end up getting any stories out of that particular trip. And just the experience of being sober in Vegas and thinking about some of my 
previous travel in Vegas when I had been drinking, I think that creates a natural drama and tension and just, you know, encountering the ghosts of my past, like that's, that's worth mining for me. And so that ended up being a really gratifying trip. It was, it was not straight travel. It was more about just more about the human experience. And I think for somebody who is sober, just to get in and out of Vegas without falling off the wagon, you're like victory. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, not that I'm sure, I'm sure you were fine. I mean, I, I can't, you seem like you, uh, you're not white knuckling it though. I guess everybody has their days, but, uh, you know, I feel like certain places and certain experiences are just so kind of, uh, it's like so routine, like getting fucked up as part of being in Las Vegas mm-hmm. almost. Right. And I should say too, that like the travel world, especially when you're on the, the hostel, uh, circuit, you know, and you're staying at hostels, I, I feel like binge drinking and pot smoking is kind of de rigueur in those scenarios, you know, oh, I'm yeah. sure you you were exposed to a lot of that. Well, I was drinking at the time when I was doing that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of why I just, I hit my lifetime limit. (laughs) I think I I don't know you that well, but I just, you don't strike me as somebody who is like super, like living like a rock star life. But I, I relate to this, like I'm essentially sober. Like I don't, I haven't declared sobriety or anything. Like I, I may drop acid tomorrow for all I know, or like smoke a joint. Like I don't have like a a lock on it. I'm just too old. I can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it. I'd have no interest in a hangover, like zero. Yeah. I think it's, and so, I don't know, kudos to you for recognizing it and pulling the plug, right? Yeah. You know, um, when I was newly sober, I went to Greece and Greece is a country where people are so kind and so generous like there were people always offering me alcohol (laughs) and that was so even though I wasn't there to party and I wasn't going to clubs or anything like that there were just such like just so much kindness (laughs) where people would bring me you know a a whole bottle of liquor and (laughs) and so there was a moment where I was on the island of Naxos and I thought, I'm just going to look for an AA meeting. And I looked on this app and it said the closest one was seven miles away. And I was like, oh, that's great. That's not too far. And then I realized it was on an entirely different island. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so it's experiences like that. Like I want to write about that for other sober travelers. You know, it's just, um, just kind of the thing you don't think about and you don't necessarily find in a guidebook. Yeah. And it's good to kind of own your little niche. Yeah. I mean, that's like, and by the way, you're far from the only person who is sober and traveling and probably thinking about this stuff. So you've got an audience. It's not like a super tiny niche. Right. And I think more people are sober curious now, or they're, you know, they're on a cleanse or just whatever. They're making this the decision to abstain for whatever reason. I think, and I think there are also people, I mean, this is sort of my category. It's like, alcohol's just poison. (laughs) I get that like a glass of wine can be delicious. Like, you know, I'm not trying to like shame people, but it's really just like a liquid toxin. Right. Yeah. And as you get older, you feel like absolute dog shit. If you have like three glasses of it, like it's probably not great for you. (laughs) I think there are people who are like, maybe like a gummy or like eating some mushrooms twice a year is the way to go. Like eat, 
do the plant thing. Yeah, you know, that's in, California of like, sober. That's right, yeah. California sober. But I think California sober is <laughs> advisable in, for many people. Yeah, I mean, I was finding myself. I would I would wake up and I would work out for an hour just to get all the alcohol out of my body, and then I thought, you know, what if I just skipped that step? <laughs> Where... <Right. laughs> Like, what if I didn't do that? <laughs> and then, and so that opened up just a lot more time and opportunity for me when I just cut that part of the equation out. Yeah, the complete like detox, like hour in your morning. Good thing you live in the desert. You, you know, it's hot out. You can just <laughs> yeah. walk around outside for, walk around outside for an hour, be completely dehydrated to the point of almost passing out. But the alcohol has been, you know, dispatched. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So, Here's a question that I, I imagine list, uh, you know, a listener at home might be contemplating, which is like, where to start? Mm-hmm. You have no experience and you want to do this. You want to get a foothold somewhere. I know it's like, it, there's not a one size fits all answer, but like just in general, like what is a good way for people to begin? So I'd say start where you are. And you can get some bylines writing about the place where you live because nobody knows that place better than you do. So there are a lot of things about the place where I live where I just think like, oh, that's that's weird. Somebody should write about that. And I guess it's me because I know about it. So whatever makes you curious, whatever like really lights you up inside. Uh, one travel story that I really loved doing, even though it didn't take me outside of Palm Springs, I... I found some hobo symbols like carved into the dirt near some train tracks. And I only know that they were hobo symbols because my family came from, my grandfather worked on the railroad. And so I had always heard about this hobo code of like secret symbols that hobos used. So I started digging into it and, um, and I found people who like run a hobo museum and people who are experts in like graffiti and in, you know, the codes that people use to communicate uh, as they travel. And so, so that was just a really fun story that it was just me being, being curious and like, and, and that turned out to be just worth digging into. Um, So I'm sure there are weird things and quirky things or interesting things wherever a person is. So start, so start local, local, possibly. Yes. Read a lot of travel magazines, read publications. Uh, I think a lot of beginners believe that the only wait, place... Wait. I want to stop you. What are some travel publications, like just some popular ones? Yeah. So there's like Travel and Leisure, Condé Nast Traveler, Afar. But I think beginners kind of uh, get hung up thinking those are the only travel publications. And when you start thinking about a travel story in a broader sense you realize it can be in a lot of different publications that aren't exclusively devoted to travel. So it might be a food story or it might be, you know, something historical. And that really opens up the number of places that you can pitch it to. Okay. So when it comes to pitching, Mm -hmm. like somebody might say, you know what, I live in Chicago, so I'm going to start here or nearby. And let's just say they are going to write a story about like Wrigley Field, you know, just to be super basic about it. Right. 
and then they say, well, I want to pitch this to a travel magazine. People don't realize you can take a tour of Wrigley Field, and it's actually quite interesting, and there's lots of Chicago history embedded into it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How do, the pitching process, especially for a rookie, right. you know, like what do you do? You just like find publications that you think might fit, search the masthead, and then send an email and cross your fingers? Like what are some of the do's and don'ts? Okay, so like with any publication that I pitch, I first search their archives to make sure they haven't written something about that in the past. I also come up with a specific story angle or what's new about it so that there's a reason for me to be writing it. Okay. When you say search the archives, mm-hmm. are those typically online typically or do you go online. to the online? Um, But I do use my local library a lot. (laughs) Like I go back through the most recent um, editions to make sure that a magazine hasn't already covered something or I search online or I just do some Google searches too, just to make sure there's, you know, that I'm not pitching something that they've already done because that's very embarrassing. I also like bad, it's like bad manners. (laughs) I mean, I cringe when I think back to some of the pitches that I've sent. And some of them weren't even pitches. Like, I remember sending off an email. God, I can't even believe I'm admitting this. I, I sent an email to an editor that said, like, hey, I'm headed to Portland. Do you need any stories? <laughs> no, no, they don't need any stories from a person right. they don't know. Like, right. And also, I wasn't giving them any ideas. I wasn't, you know, presenting them with an actual story. So a story usually has something new about it, or it has some, you know, interesting character. It's a good profile of someone. There's, there has to be some reason for telling that story. And then because editors are very busy and... If you're doing cold pitching, you know, you're already starting at a disadvantage. So I like to make it as easy as possible for the editor to understand what I'm pitching. And so I tend to find another story in their publication that is similar in tone, even if it's not the same topic whatsoever. So I can say like, hey, this you know, this will be a reported essay similar in tone to the article about whatever, Manitoba, that you had in the March issue. And that way the editor can look at it and have a very, you know, clear idea of what I'm pitching and um, because they're already familiar with that previous story. And they know that you've been reading the publication. Which, yeah, is like a nice courtesy and just like a feather in your cap, you know. Uh, in terms of how long a pitch is, what a pitch letter contains, or what a pitch email contains, it's obviously got to contain a thumbnail of what you're proposing. I don't think you want to go on and on about what this thing's going to be. You just want to make it clear and concise right. so that they have a full gra- as full a grasp as possible, as quickly as possible. But aside from that, what do you include? Like, I guess it, if you have some bylines, you might include some of those. Yeah. So I tend to do the introduction saying, like, I'm proposing a story like this, similar to another story that appeared in your publication. I give them a brief overview, like maybe three sentences of what the story is about. I say, um, like, if I have sources that I've already talked to or um, potential sources that I 
anticipate interviewing for the piece, I say, you know, my sources would include this person, this person, this person. And then I include a little about me with, you know, two or three sentences with links to um, some of my clips. So like, uh, like one screen, they don't have to do much scrolling on their email. Right. I include links whenever possible. And I also, I do the bulk of of the legwork before I send the pitch. So there's not a lot that I still have to do after the story has been accepted. Okay. But I mean, does that ever wasted motion? Does, have you ever had a story not get accepted after yeah. doing all that legwork? I have a yeah. ton of them. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing. I feel like, you know, I, I have so many story ideas. There, It's just not possible for me to pitch them all and find the right place. It's... You know, I have a lot of stories that I'm really dying to tell. So, okay. So, a couple of questions. Yeah. First of all, like in terms of pitching an editor, when somebody's looking at a masthead, uh, like Travel and Leisure, for example, how do you know which editor to pitch? Sometimes the publications have a pitch guide, and so you can Google Travel and Leisure pitching, and um, and I believe they have a whole page that says. You know, if you're pitching for our website, contact this person. If you're pitching for, you know, luxury hotels, you know, contact this person or whatever. And they break it down so that it, you know, you're sending it to the right place. Sometimes I also will Google like travel and leisure editor Twitter and see who pops up to see like Twitter is not as reliable now as it used to be, but it used to be that a lot of editors were available on Twitter. I check LinkedIn to make sure the person is still at that publication. Like I, I really do a lot of legwork to make sure that it gets to the right person because that I think increases your chances. I don't, I, I never anymore just send out like a pitch to 10 different people at the same time or anything like that. I, I very much custom write a pitch for the publication. Have you ever pitched somebody on Twitter? Um, not on Twitter, but you find calls for pitches on Twitter or you find the editor's information on Twitter. I think it's okay. really a bad move to slide into an editor's DMs unless they ask for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, a second question has to do with being generative. And you talked about having all these ideas and so many different pitches and so many different stories that you want to write. You know, that's because you're interested in this stuff and you're a travel writer and everything else. But, you know, in order to be consistently generative, you have to, I, I always say input equals output. You have to be reading a lot in the genre. You have to be like poking around online or in newspapers and reading about places and figuring out what's interesting to you, right? Is that how you sustain, uh, you know, yourself and keep yourself generative? Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm a, I'm pretty generative with stories. The hardest part for me is prioritizing like, okay, I want to consistently, I want to keep pitching this story because it's important to me and not just like chasing every new story idea that I have. So that's hard for me is like, like just, just before we got on this call, I saw um, someone who, you know, does 
fortune telling with cheese. And I was like, oh, I want to write an article about that. <laughs> and then I had to tell, Where is this? Like, I had to tell myself like, no focus. I have all these other stories that I'm pitching that I want to write first. You know, that's probably, I can't just keep chasing stories. Where, where is the psychic with cheese? Chicago. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That makes some, makes some sense. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's apparently a thing. It's a divination tool, just like reading tea leaves. You look at the curds. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, and you know, like that's not a travel story, but it's really interesting to me. I have another story coming up that was another thing that I just I thought was just really interesting, and it's about cow hugging therapy, and um, and so I'm writing about that for Outside Magazine. And, um, and that's something that I, I pitched to a couple different places and, and I think outside is a really good home for it. Sure. Sure. And so, uh, let's kind of like go through the process. Like you have come up with a great pitch. Mm -hmm. You've written your great pitch letter. You've located the right editor or you followed the pitch guide for whatever publication that you're pitching. You are advising that you should pitch one place at a time or at least a small number of places in a batch? I pitch a small number of places. If it's something exclusive, you know, or if I have a really good feeling that it's perfect for one specific place, you know, I'll pitch them and wait until I hear from them. Or if it's an editor that I've been working with, I kind of give them first dibs just, um, just to be kind or like if I think it's a really good fit, then I genuinely want to place it with them. And then I move on from there and and I will change the pitch depending on the, um, the publication. So like what works for the Financial Times, you know, wouldn't be the same thing that works for, you know, Condé Nast Traveler. It's just different styles. So, how many subscriptions to magazines do you have? Like, you, I guess you go into the library a lot to look at these things because you do have to familiarize yourself with all these different styles and the, you know, just the way that they do it. Right. Yeah, I do have a lot of subscriptions, but like, yeah, I do go to the library a lot. I'm also lucky enough to work for a university, so I get some archives that way. Sure. So. In terms of uh, feedback, like you pitch somebody, is there a general turnaround time that you're accustomed to? I know it probably varies some, but like what can a person expect once you've pitched to hear back? And do you hear back? Do you sometimes just get ghosted totally and nobody says anything? Yeah, the I, gotta imagine. I mean, most of the time you just don't hear from someone. And I, I follow up within a week or two. And that has been really great. Like I keep track of who I've pitched. I return to it a week later or two weeks, depending on the time of year. Like sometimes if it's around holidays or something, you know, I want to give them more time. And, um, and sometimes it's just following up is all it takes. And, you know, maybe the editor missed it the first time around or meant to respond and, and didn't. But, um, I like to give them the opportunity but then after that, I just, I leave it because I don't want to, I don't want to be a nag either. So, um, so after that, I just assume it's a no and I move on to other publications. And then sometimes, you know, I'll have a piece that I think is a really great idea and it's just not a fit and I haven't found a, a placement for it, but then something comes along months later where it's perfect, you know? So I had an idea after I was in Iceland, 
I learned about the problems that the the baby puffins have. They get confused, kind of like sea turtles, where they go toward the lights of the city instead of going out to sea. And that's what happens with these baby puffins. You know, they they start to go into town where they're eaten by cats or hit by cars, and, and they die instead of going out to the ocean where they're meant to be. And so there are a bunch of children who, during puffling season... They go out in the middle of the night. They call themselves the Puffling Patrol. They gather up the puffins in cardboard boxes, and then in the morning, they toss them out to sea like fuzzy little baseballs. And um, and I thought... <laughs> this is adorable. I know. I was like, I, I love the Puffling Patrol. I pitched it to a bunch of places, and nobody was responsive. But then Atlas Obscura was putting together a book about wildlife stories around the world. And I thought, aha, <laughs> like I've got a story for you. And so it's perfect for that book. And, and so it will be in that book whenever it comes out. So timing matters. Right. And, you know, sometimes just hang on to it because you never know when it's going to find that perfect fit. That's right. That's right. So when you get a yes, mm-hmm. what does that look like? Um... Usually all the yeses come all at once and then I stress out and I spend a lot of days drinking a lot of coffee and just getting all the articles done. I, I mean, it just, it goes in waves, honestly. There are lots of times where I have nothing and I think I'm never going to write again. And then there are times when I have, you know, 10 stories on my plate, which is really great and rewarding. Okay. But okay. So like, let's say you pitch this, you, you want to go to Iceland right. just as an example. And such and such magazine says, yes, we're going to send you to Iceland. Like they, they pay for your trip. Like how does the money work? Oh, well, that is not my forte. I am very uh, travel broke in that any money I make from writing about travel goes directly into more travel. Um, <laughs> it's very rare anymore for a publication to send you out on assignment they're more likely to accept something from a trip that you have already taken or if you are going somewhere and have a really firm idea of the story you're going to write while you're there. So like I've, I did stories from Belize after I returned from Belize and that was self-funded, but it was also so, but I wrote about it to the point where that covered all of my travel. So and then also some writers go on press trips, some don't. It's kind of a a like a there's some tension in the travel world. Um, there are some publications that you can't pitch if you're um, if you have received compensation in any way, whether that's a press trip or a media rate on a hotel or something like that. I was going to say, because I feel like you can, I have a friend who does this, goes on these fabulous trips, like they're press trips. Yeah. And they put you up at like this five-star hotel and they take you out horseback riding and like the whole, they show you a great time so that you'll write about it favorably, like the times or whatever. But that typically, like if you're going on a trip to say Iceland, you're not calling ahead to some hotel and being like, hey, by the way, I'm a travel writer. I'm coming to town. Can you give me a rate? So you can, and I've done that, but I do that when I fully intend to write about the place. I know that some, some writers are just, you know, I, 
like everyone, we're all looking for a break. <laughs> like, you know, right. things are expensive now. Um, but I don't want to receive a discount on something unless I 100% intend to write about them in some way. So I will ask for a discount in some cases. Sometimes I just, you know, find the cheapest accommodation possible if I have no intention of writing about like the hotel. Okay. And so like, even like Condé Nast Traveler, like they're not sending people out to, to cover stuff or are they, you try to use writers who are like local to a place to cover. Right. For some of the, for some of the features they are for just like a, a digital story, no, they're using someone who's local or someone who has already done the trip or they're doing someone who's doing like, you know, reporting from their desk. So that's, that's possible too. Yeah. I remember when I was just out of college, one of my first jobs was to be like a magazine writer for like stuff magazine, these like bro mags. Yeah. And I had to write some article. It was like the best places in the world to get laid. I was living at home with my parents at the time. So I just had <laughs> total authority, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was like Miami international airport. Like, and I'm like picking these places just out of a hat that I've never been to and just winging it. You know, yeah. I didn't realize that was how it worked there. My editor was like, Oh yeah, just, you know, f- try to figure it out, call somebody there and ask them. And I, <laughs> I think I called the Miami airport somehow. I was like, what's a good place to have sex in Miami airport. And some guy was like telling me, so. <laughs> Anyway, memories, my esteemed career as a journalist. Um, You know, but I have gone on press trips. And again, with press trips, I I only accept them if I fully am pretty much fully confident that I will write about the places that I'm going or, um, or will get stories from it. Like I know sometimes people will just take a trip, a free trip, because it's a free trip. I think it's, it's just up to the writer. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of that. You got to cover expenses somehow, especially if these magazines aren't paying you right? You know, to do this stuff. I mean, you got to make it work somehow. It's expensive to travel abroad. I think, honestly, I really hope some publications change that policy because I think it's another form of gatekeeping. You know, you're just, you're not getting all the voices that you could potentially get. It's got to be somebody who can afford the trip. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So what about being on the ground mm-hmm. and like, like sifting through all that happens during a big trip and like winnowing it down into a serviceable story that people are going to enjoy reading, you know, like there has to come a time for you probably when you return, I would imagine, though mm-hmm. maybe occasionally when you're out there in the field 
where you've got to make sense of your experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I do, uh, I spend a lot of time walking when I'm in a new place. I just, I like to get a sense of the layout of the place. And that's also just how I write and think and process is that I, I do a lot of walking. So I like to get a real feel by moving through the place in that way. I take notes in that they're like bullet point notes in a notebook. I also take a lot of pictures because I feel like just having a phone that can take pictures is a really great tool for a writer so that I can go back and look and and I'm able to describe something really fully. And then after the trip, you just look for the memories that rise to the top, like the things that really resonate with you and that you continue to think about. And sometimes it's a really spectacular meal. Sometimes it's, you know, like an experience that you had or a person that you met, a connection that you made. It, it can be anything, but just look for what, what is really unique and interesting that, that sticks for you. Also, I think there's something to be said for, like as much as I am a, an activity person, like when I go, when I travel, I say yes to everything. You know, if, if someone's like, hey, we could go zip lining, Yes, yes, I will do that. You know, anything. So I do try to engage with as many activities as possible, but I also like to carve out some time just for being like still there and just kind of absorbing a place. And um, there's a, a Pico Iyer quote where he says, it's impossible to be moved if you're not sitting still. And, um, and so I try to allow some time for, for being still in a place, just for letting it kind of seep into my bones. Yeah, it's kind of like what I always say is that it's great to go on a vacation for a week or 10 days or something. That's always great. But if you really want to be able to get a feel for a place, you sort of have to hang around long enough to get bored, long enough <laughs> to just sit there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if, you, if you're on like some frenetic tour of three different European capitals in 10 days, like, great, that'll be fun. You'll have a lot of memories and, you know, it's better to go than to not go. But if you actually want to get to know these places, you need more time. You're better off like kind of embedding yourself into like an Airbnb or something in some neighborhood and grocery shopping and like living there a little bit, but that's not always doable. Yeah. I, that's a, another thing that I like to do if possible, if there's enough time, I like to do the same things that I do at home, but just in other places, like going to the movies is really interesting in other countries because, you know, I can tell you going to the movies in Bangkok is very different than going in Rwanda and, and I've gotten some great stories out of doing things like that. Or, you know, I, even though well, I what's don't... The difference, what's the difference between going to the movies in Thailand versus mm. going in... So Florida? in Bangkok, I had a very luxurious experience where, like, you have your own box seat and people were bringing me food and blankets and it was very posh. And then... Um, when I went to the movies in Kigali, which is the, uh, the capital of Rwanda, um, I showed up at the local movie theater, theater, I say with air quotes, and they were waiting for someone to bring a DVD. And the movie that they showed was just whatever movie somebody would bring that night. <laughs> so, I mean, it was like inevitably some Fast and Furious movie or something, you know, but you never knew what movie they were showing because it was all like 
it was all chance. It was just whatever someone would bring that night. <laughs> it's sort of fun. It adds an element element of suspense. Um, and so, I mean, and they were both great experiences, but um, that's something really boring that you wouldn't necessarily make time for when you're traveling. But it's it was just interesting to see how other people go to the movies. And even though I don't eat McDonald's at home, really, I try to always go to McDonald's in different places because I really like their regional menus and to see what they have, you know. What, like, what have you seen? So in Taiwan, I had a really great corn soup at <laughs> McDonald's. And in India, I had a McPaneer, <laughs> like just a big, thick slab of fried cheese on a bun. And it was, it was incredible, honestly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Good for India. <laughs> so what about like the ethics? There are ethical questions that are raised increasingly so in our time of like great, uh, you know, climate change and global weirding and all these, you know, wildfires and hurricanes and floods and everything. Obviously, air travel c- contributes considerably to uh, like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And there are some people who are saying like travel less, you know what I'm saying? Like right. we need, we need less tourism and not more and all this stuff. So where do you fall on that? I mean, that's the struggle. <laughs> that's, um, that's something that I believe every, every travel writer needs to reckon with is, um, the fact that we want to see the world, but in seeing it, we're also killing it. And I don't, I don't know that there's an easy answer like travel less. I don't necessarily think that's the key. I think demanding more sustainable travel is, is good. Um, I think we need to demand more efficient planes. <laughs> you know, we need to urge the people in power to do something about it. I, I'm seeing an increasing number of places that are prioritizing sustainability, uh, which I think is is the future of travel. And then when I do travel, I do so with intention, and I try not to contribute to the problem. You know, like like I don't want to go and be a source of like plastic waste. You know, I always bring my own water bottle and my own. Um, I have this thing called a SteriPen, which is like a UV cleaner for your water. So you can, it makes it safe to drink so that I'm not buying. What is this thing called? It's called a SteriPen. Um, It was actually purchased by a different company recently. So I don't know what the new name is, but it's like a UV light. It's about the size of a Sharpie and uh, you put it in your water for 60 seconds and then um, it makes it safe to drink. And so I'm not buying water bottles all over the place because I'm just refilling my Nalgene bottle everywhere that I go. And I feel like that makes a big difference, you know, when you're not using up plastic. Like, I, you know, I don't know that I'm, I'm going to change the world, but I'm not making it worse, I hope. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. my goal is to leave You just everything. want to try to... Try to have a smaller footprint. I yeah. know you can like buy you can buy carbon offsets. I've heard of people doing that when they take an yeah. international flight. They buy some sort of carbon offset to sort of balance out the equation. But it's so hard, like you say. You've got to you got to live. And I don't think and I don't think world travel or travel in general is going to stop. People are always going to travel. They're always going to want to travel, and it's not an unhealthy impulse. Right. 
And, you know, there's even emerging tourism based on climate change, which I think is really interesting and, and also very sad. There's called eco-necro-tourism, which is going to see um, threatened places before they die off. Hey, yeah. So, um, and, and there are arguments to be made for it. Um, right now, like one of the biggest topics in the travel world is, is going to Antarctica. Like you're definitely dooming Antarctica by going, but some people argue that the only way to preserve a place is to generate interest in it. And you generate interest in it by, you know, traveling there and telling people about it. So again, I don't, I don't know that there is one right answer. I think every person, every traveler, every travel writer needs to determine that for themselves. Yeah. I think there's a difference between tourism and traveling too. I mean, it's like, it's a little bit blurry, but there's like, it's one thing to like go to Disney World and it's another thing to go to Kigali. Mm-hmm. And, and like, just, I think it's also, it's attitudinal. Like it's like the way that you occupy space and the way that you move through a place, like you're saying, and you know, what your motivation is. If you're just trying to like hit all the sites and get your selfie with your selfie stick, you know, that's one way to do it. But, uh, you know, there's also the person who's sort of like knocking around for a month to sort of see what happens and is trying to write something or I don't know. Yeah. It just, there's different modes. I think also it's, it's interesting to see how travel has shifted since Instagram was invented. Uh, when I did my backpacking trip, that was in 2010, 2011. And I've since traveled a lot after, you know, since then. And entire places have changed because of Instagram, because people are just trying to get that picture. And now there are places set up for you to encounter like people in traditional outfits or like just certain pictures doing it for the gram. And I don't know, I don't know why someone would do that. Like, I don't know why you'd go so far to feel so little because you're not making a real connection with the place. You're not necessarily learning anything authentic about the place, but then I don't know. I, I don't know that you can define also what authentic is when you travel. So I don't know. I think it's pitiful. To just <laughs> these people with their, f- I mean, look, get a photo, you know, wherever you are, you want to get a photo, get a photo. But there are people who are like literally just like ticking boxes mm-hmm. and like trying to like glamorize themselves in these places. And it's like the deepest they go in terms of trying to understand a place. And it's pitiful. You know, what a waste. You know, right on the heels of my backpacking trip, um, I had an old friend who contacted me and he said, I, I really want to travel like you, but I don't know how. If I pay for you to go through, to go around Europe with me, will you come? And I said, yes, of course. <laughs> and so he um, bought my tickets and then we traveled together through, we did a road trip through 16 different countries within a month. And it really was like, at the time, there was a list on Facebook of places to see before you die. And he really wanted to tick off as many of those as possible. And so that determined our our route uh, through these multiple countries. And we were just like driving up, getting a picture, and then driving on to the next location. And it really taught me a lot about how I don't want to travel 
But at the same time, like this was a person who, you know, he, he wasn't comfortable traveling on his own. And I think it did push him a little bit beyond his limits. And so, or beyond his, you know, comfort zone. And so that, that is equally valuable. He, he did, you know, get to see some things. So I, I don't know that there's a wrong way to travel, but it's not necessarily the way that I would do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's teach their own, you know, teach their own. And I want to ask you before I let you go about like, I guess this is a larger career question and it's just like a, a viability question in terms of trying to make some semblance of a living and to keep going and to keep being able to do this work. And, you know, there's, uh, I don't think anybody listening to my show would be surprised to learn that like publishing and media is a fraught business and it's hard to make a living in it. Uh, but you are working consistently. You are, um, you know, filing stories for a lot of different publications. You have been doing a lot of cool traveling and travel related writing. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you envision or hope to integrate perhaps the journalism work that you do with possible future book projects like they it seems like you got to kind of create an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's like you, maybe you have a podcast or a YouTube channel. Um, you know, Kara and Nate, those traveling youngsters, you know, on YouTube, yeah. my daughter, my daughter introduced me to these people. She loves them. And I'm like, these guys have built a lucrative little business, just traveling the world and creating these videos, mm-hmm. you know, like, so I'm just curious to know, like, especially from a writerly perspective, like how you conceive of it. Man, I would love to be some kind of travel influencer, but I'm not comfortable enough to be on camera for that. Sometimes I go on press trips with influencers, and it's really interesting to see the differences between the journalists and the magazine writers and the influencers. And it's, it's <laughs> I'm, I'm very jealous of them, but it's also, it's also hard work and in a different way. I would love to have a YouTube channel where I could do that, but I'm very much a, like, I still think I'd ha- I have those newspaper roots where I'm much more comfortable behind uh, a notebook or a computer. As far as long-term, my next book project, I have been reporting from multiple places. I see it as more research-driven than any of my previous books. So my first book was a travel memoir. My, my next book, which is coming out in March, is called 50 Things to Do Before You're Five. And that's kind of gentle adventures for families with young children. And, and that, you know, I'm not encouraging families to, I'm not saying go to the Great Wall of China. I'm saying like, go on a smell walk around your neighborhood or visit an art museum, things like that. But again, it's just cultivating that love of travel in young children. And then my the book project I'm working on now is much more reported work, and I think it it's uh, more aligned with my background in journalism. I don't want to talk about it too much because I feel like I've already kind of sucked the energy out of it by talking about it. But it does involve travel, and I'm hoping that the magazine work that I do along the way will help sustain the reporting of it. And then, so it's a work. It's a work of nonfiction. It is a work of nonfiction, and it is like travel related, but it's actually like you're. It's like a long form, yeah, nonfiction narrative of some kind that takes place elsewhere. Yes, 
Yeah. So like, you know, that book Salt that looked at like many different aspects of like the history of salt and, you know, cultivating salt all over the world. So kind of like that, like an obsessive look at one thing from different places around the world. And, um, you know, in my dreams, I would love to have a media empire where I could just put all of these like weird, fun stories that I find all over the world. Like, look at this cool shit that I found, (laughs) you know, like that's, that's the dream. And I don't know if that is a digital publication or finding a way to put it in another book in the future. But, um, I think there are just so many stories to tell out there and, and I just don't have the capacity to pitch them all. Look at all this cool shit I found.com <laughs> is yeah. available. I just looked on GoDaddy, so you might want to lock that one up. Come on, or Brad. You can call it, it would be called <laughs> Magazine. <That's... laughs> okay. Or G- GentleAdventures.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been so fun to talk to you. This is such a cool topic to get to discuss. And it's all, you know, I love to travel. I don't do nearly enough of it, but um, maybe I will soon after talking to you. Maybe I'll just go book something right now. Just swipe that credit card and take off. Do it. Do it. I do that sometimes. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with this next book project and with all that you have going. Thank you. It's been an honor to be on your show and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Maggie Downs, all about travel writing. Great talk. Maggie is the author of the memoir, Braver Than You Think, Around the World on the Trip of My Mother's Lifetime, available from Counterpoint Press. You can find out more information about Maggie, her book, and her travel writing over at her official website, maggieinc.com. That's I-N-K, maggieinc.com. You can also follow her on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I believe. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Don't forget to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter. You can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And if you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, I would love it if you would do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to do me a quick favor, I would really appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen, give it a rating, write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, and what have you, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just look for the t-shirt, scroll down, you can't miss it. Finally... A quick plug for my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you would like to read my latest novel or have me read it to you, again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a new flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie, a good episode from years past. And then on Sunday, it's TBD. I feel like things have been TBD lately. 
where I'm just sorting it out on the fly, figuring it out at the last minute. But that's what's happening. Dog days of summer. Hope you guys are doing well. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will talk to you soon. Stay tuned.